Has American business turned left this week on the Science of Politics? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. American business used to be a common partner of Republicans, advancing lower taxes and regulation. But recent years have witnessed claims that corporations have gone woke as they increasingly endorse progressive values like diversity and sustainability. Are companies really moving leftward? And if so, are they following consumers or employees? This week, I talked to Eitan Hirsch of Tufts University about his new paper with Sarang Shah, The Partisan Realignment of American Business. He finds that business leaders perceive their companies as moving leftward, mostly due to internal demands. They even increasingly share democratic policy priorities. I also talked to Shobik Barari of Harvard University about his new paper, Political Speech from Corporations is Sparse, Only Recently Liberal, and Moderately Representative. He finds that companies are moving leftward in their social media posts, but it's not all for show. Their public messaging is somewhat indicative of their internal behavior. They both say the woke capitalism narrative may be incomplete, but commentators are reacting to real change. Let's start with my interview with Hirsch. So you have been evaluating this common claim that business has been moving away from the Republican Party and toward the Democratic Party. Uh, is that true? Uh, and uh, what are the biggest takeaways from your analysis so far? Sure. So I think it's a contested claim. Um, everyone, I think, or not everyone, but a lot of people sense there's this realignment happening, maybe at the mass level, maybe at the elite level. Uh, the Republican Party is becoming a more concentrated group of non-college educated Americans and the college educated workforce um, is becoming more on the democratic side and business, particularly big businesses that are, that are staffed and run by, um, by college educated folks seem to, we see like news every day that they're under pressure to um, take positions on liberal issues or manage stakeholders like employees or customers or activist board members who want to push the company one way or another. And we see a lot of the activism mostly on the left. That is like, um, it feels a long time ago now that uh, when we thought about business leaders, we thought about oil companies or the Koch brothers. You know, if we look at CEO activism over the last decade, it's, you know, overwhelmingly on left-leaning issues, the public stuff. So the question is, like, how do you know whether a company or uh, a set of companies or, or, or business elites in general are moving one way or the other? And that's what our paper is trying to, to weigh in on. So you do this by uh, taking surveys of American business elites. Uh, so how do you define and, and reach them? Uh, and how does your strategy differ from, from some of the other ones that we've seen? Sure. So um, just, you know, for, for everyone, it's probably obvious if you're like in the research world that, you know, if you want to survey the mass public, a representative sample of the mass public, that's pretty straightforward. We know how to do it. It's not easy because like people don't respond to, you know, solicitations anymore, but we roughly know how to do it because we know what the population looks like. Studying elites of all kinds is really hard. Um, I think the most common ways to study business elites uh, or wealthy people in American politics tends to be through campaign finance data. Um, so like I did a survey a while ago uh, with Brian Schaffner, where we like surveyed high dollar donors to political campaigns and you have the population of high dollar donors and you, you know, you survey them. Um, other people, including you, have used, uh, you know, PAC data. There's uh, 
there's a lot of like hard data to use. The problem with all of those forms of data is that like there's real limitations, just like with anything. So um, uh, when we think of donors, for example, who are associated with businesses, we see donor behavior, like rich people who are work for a company, and it seems pretty clear from the data that they're giving donations to political candidates really more based on their own ideological worldview than their than as representative of their company. Um, so you know you can see that in the fact that like almost no one donates to both parties, uh, even among you know rich business elites. And so you get the sense that okay, like that's not necessarily going to give us a sense of where a business is. Our approach was to try to use a creative set of tools um, that I've done in various versions before by using voter file data to target uh, people who are likely to be business elites. So that is, I went to a national voter file vendor. I looked at rich people in rich neighborhoods of working age who are not uh, physicians or hold other licenses that might suggest they're like not business leaders. And I, I surveyed them. Um, it is a sample that is like any sample has some advantages and disadvantages over other methods. And we can talk about those if you want. Yeah, I guess I'll just ask directly then. So how, how do we know that these are actually business people or business elites or representatives of the places that they work for? Sure. So what we know from the people who responded to the survey is that they are overwhelmingly people who like fit the, 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 the characteristics of what we think of as business elites. That is the most common person we interviewed is like, a COO, a C-suite person. We also, we entered, I think 10% or 15% of the sample are like CEOs and presidents of companies. They're vice presidents. They're nearly all in uh, management roles. They're nearly all very wealthy. Um, and uh, and they work for a wide range of industries. And so there's a, there's a whole bunch of people who we know are excluded from this method. Um, and that is, we did not interview people who did not live in single family homes in very wealthy neighborhoods. And there's a whole bunch of states that actually don't even have neighborhoods like that. So there's a business elite in Mississippi, for example, that um, are not in our survey because there are no block groups, census block groups in Mississippi that is concentrated among wealthy people. And so it was, it's very hard using this method to pinpoint, well, like who is likely to be a well-to-do business elite in, in Mississippi? So our survey sample is concentrated on about half of the states where there are these pockets of like rich, rich neighborhoods um, where you have this kind of elite. Now, we have Republicans and Democrats in the sample. Um, we know the population of the sampling frame. That is, we know how many people are... Um, like the people we sample, that is, they 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 live in single-family houses and rich neighborhoods. They're of working age between thirty-five and sixty-five. Uh, they don't have like medical licenses, and so we know like our sample as it turns as it relates to that sampling frame. What we don't know is like, um, well, how many like small business owners in Alabama, Mississippi, or, or places like that are not in our sample, and how do they differ from the ones who are? So you also have a companion survey of the American public. So you're able to compare how the public as a whole versus business leaders specifically uh, think about these things. And, and one of the first questions you introduce is just asking them, are businesses uh, moving leftward? Um, and it looks like the business leaders are more convinced of that uh, than the public. What should we make of that? Yeah. So this is fascinating because if you ask Democrats or independents in the mass public, are businesses moving to the 
right, they to the left or to the right, they say, no, they're not, you know, they're not moving really anywhere. But if you ask Republicans in the mass public, they say, yeah, the business community, businesses across the country are moving to the Democratic side. Only Republicans in the electorate say that. And, um, you know, you might think they say that because some of them are getting messages from uh, from news media that, you know, there's this new woke capitalism that's taken over. And if you're an observer looking at that, you might think, oh, like, are they misperceiving reality because they're living in some media bubble? That is, they, the Republicans in the electorate, they're perceiving something that no one else is perceiving. And then you ask the same question to the business leaders. And what you see is that they all, that is, no matter whether they're Democrats, Republicans or independents, all the business leaders in our sample tend to think that, yes, their company is moving to the left. National companies are moving to the left. Companies in their state are moving to the left. There's no partisan difference. Um, and so uh, that's an important comparison because what it shows is that the the there's disagreement in the electorate. And that disagreement, I think, is resolved a bit by asking business elites themselves. And they say, yeah, the companies are moving to the left. So you also uh, try to take apart the the company and look at different uh, stakeholders um, that the company might be responding to. Uh, and one of the clearest patterns I saw was that a lot of people see employees as being uh, more democratic, um, but they see customers as as more Republican. Um, that might be responsive to uh, the kind of public debate we're having about whether these companies are responding to consumers uh, or just internal demands. Uh, and does it look like, yes, it, the internal demand story is right? Yeah, I think I think the data is consistent with that. I mean, the, the people who are the stakeholders outside of the uh, of the customers, you know, uh, if you have a big company that is mostly uh, um, uh, hires a college educated workforce, most of your employees like your employees are overwhelmingly Democratic and the the management might be overwhelmingly Democratic. And what we see is when you ask business leaders, where did the various stakeholders lean? They say, yeah, the CEOs tend to be democratic, and the and the and the employees tend to be democratic, and the uh, and but they don't say that about the customers, which makes sense because the customers are, you know, Americans mostly, and um and they're 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 across the board. So I I think what you you do see evidence to suggesting that the internal stakeholders of the company are the ones who tend to be leaning uh, leaning left and pushing left. So you also asked them about recent movement um, over the last 10 years, and there you saw more kind of cross the board uh, leftward pressure across uh, stakeholders um, that, you know, more of the stakeholders were moving left and pressuring the company to, to move left. So, you know, why why do you think that is that people see executives and, and board members, for example, as moving leftward, but don't quite see them as associated with the Democratic Party yet? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So just to, to like clarify it. So when you ask companies like when you ask executives, these business leaders, uh, you know, where do your company stand? There's tend to be all sorts of disagreement. Uh, that is the Democratic people. That, that is the, the business leaders who identify as Democrats tend to say that their companies are more on the left side. Republicans tend to say they're more on the right side. But then if you're asking, you know, in the last 10 years, has your company moved to the, towards Democrats or towards Republicans? Everyone. Democrats, Republicans, independents—they say that the companies moved left, the CEO has moved left, the employees have moved left, the board has moved left. They, there is no partisan disagreement. So you also asked about uh, policy priorities of the companies, um, and to be honest, here I was a little skeptical because um, you end up uh, finding people who 
more people, for example, say that their company is prioritizing diversity, equity, inclusion than say that their uh, company is prioritizing uh, regulation in terms of their their policy issues. Um, so, you know, does does this signal real changes in uh, what companies are interested in politically? Is this just people picking an issue affiliated with with the, the side that they've said the companies uh, are on? Um, or, you know, is this also a sign that maybe the people you interviewed aren't actually the ones kind of making the pack pack donations or the um, uh, company political activity where it still does seem like there's a little bit more activity on these traditional economic issues. Sure. So let me back up a little bit and just say, articulate a bit more about like the theoretical anchors of this paper. So what we're really interested here is in cross pressure. Whereas like if you're a company, do you see your CEO or your board being like politically neutral or Republican, but employees pushing you to the left? How is that cross pressure resolved? Um, in policy, there is a different kind of cross pressure, which is that clearly companies have different policy issues that might cut different ways, where they might have a regulatory preference that's you know consistent with the Republicans. They might have a culture in their company that's consistent with the Democrats, and um, and we're interested in that. Okay, so you're right. About half of the companies say, half of the business leaders say that their chief policy for their company is either like regulatory or something economic, like inflation, uh, you know, stuff like that, uh, taxes, whatever. And then half point to other stuff, all other stuff. And so, like healthcare is a big one, education is a big one, DEI uh, and environment is a big one. Okay, and so one reading of that, which I. I I, you didn't say exactly, but I think I, I'm implicitly reading into your question. But you could, you, we can, we can debate about it. Um, is is like, you know, if you say your company's highest priority is healthcare or in the or the environment or DEI, like, are you some kind of joker? I mean, there's no way. Um, but I actually think there's increasing evidence that that's that's not true. I mean, obviously, like healthcare is a major expense of companies, and there's a lot of companies that can legitimately claim like the healthcare costs are out of control and it's bad for a company. There's a lot of companies um, that don't have to care about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, in any kind of moral way. But their attorneys, their general counsels, are telling them like, you better you better prioritize this, and we're going to have weekly company meetings about it, and we're going to have a whole new vice president that's about this. And and by the way, like it's a serious workforce issue. Like it's not just that we care about it for fun. Like our employees will be very mad at us. We won't be able to hire people if uh, you if you're not articulating a certain view about this. That's not like a symbolic issue anymore if it's a workforce issue or a legal issue. Um, uh, and so I don't think we're surveying the wrong people because, you know, I, I did like, again, the one-on-one -on -one interviews of this are reflective of, of a sense among many business leaders that truly their company's biggest priorities are these things that are aligned um, with the left. And I think like one fascinating thing, which we talk about in the paper a bit is that um, if a company is culturally uh, tied to the left or culturally tied to the right, uh, it's actually very hard for them it could be very challenging for them to cross um, to cross sides, right? So if you can imagine a company easily or a university for that matter, that um, even if it had a regulatory preference that the Republicans liked more than the Democrats, 
the company would pay a serious cost for playing nice with the Republicans. Uh, and I think you can see this increasingly CEO saying like, you know what, you know, um, I would like to donate to a Republican, uh, but this Republican voted against the election certification, has said a bunch of stuff that if I associate my company in any way with this this candidate, like this is a major threat to our business. I, I, I think there's a real, there's a, there's um, increasingly litmus tests around that, that, um, that I think can make a, a reasonable person, even in a position of authority in a company like a CEO or a CEO or a, certainly a chief legal uh, chief counsel say like, yeah, like our biggest priorities are stuff that's aligned with Democrats. So you begin the paper with an assumption widely held, um, but I want to push back a little bit on the idea that Republicans, uh, that business used to be a key constituency of, of the Republican Party. Um, now, I think there's pretty good long running evidence that, that small business people and small business associations have been a, a Republican constituency. But um, when we come to kind of larger businesses, I guess, was was that ever uh, the case? So just uh, some counterexamples, you know, in I think 100 some issues that they looked at at the biggest uh, in the biggest study of lobbying, I think business was on both sides in every single one of them uh, on um you know, is individual studies of business lobbying almost always find that there are some issues on which the company sides with Democrats and some issues on which they side with Republicans. So I guess, did we overstate uh, the Republicanness of business in the before times? Sure, that's a great question. So I, um, I deal with a lot of this history uh, in this annual review of political science piece I wrote. Uh, I think it came out, it came out officially this year. It's called the, the political role of business leaders. And um, I tell two versions of this historical narrative. The one that I think is most common in among political scientists and honestly among the general public as well is a story that goes something like this. In the 1950s, in the post-war era, business and everyone was sort of like wishy-washy, nonpartisan, and they were very civically engaged and they and business was like super involved at the local and regional level as well as the national level and played nice to both sides. But a variety of things happened in the 1970s that changed all that. And the things that happened were basically business started feeling competition from other countries, <laughs> which hadn't happened uh, during the immediate post-war era. Um, uh, Pro-regulation groups started pushing Democrats to like vastly increase um, the regulatory state. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff happened that business gets... Um, organized and it becomes fully associated with the right. And you see this, you know, who, what scholar, I mean, if you read like Hacker and Pearson, Bartels, Page, scholars like that, I think they, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm misreporting here. I think they're telling a story that like starting in the 1970s, the business community became essentially this, this uh, stakeholder for the Republican party. You know, we, the, the nationalization of politics started happening as well. And so you have um, businesses like not playing the same kind of civic role at the regional local level that they had, which was, I would say, more nonpartisan or bipartisan. But due to like companies becoming, you know, becoming public, becoming like con multinational conglomerates, you don't have the same story of like a regional elites um, as 
kingmakers in you know in 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 regions. So you have like a national story and a partisan story emerging. And now I think you're right that that that's that's like a story that that um, that hides a lot of details. And the the details are yeah the companies obviously like if Democrats are in power, which of course Democrats were in power in the House of Representatives for this huge period of time until 1994, like, of course, the companies were also playing nice with Democrats. So one story that you said, uh, Tom Edsel, and maybe you are subscribing to is that this um, brings some potential uh, to move uh, the uh, Democrats rightward on economic issues. So walk me through how that how that might happen. Um, And I guess one alternative would just be to say, Maybe we're just seeing, you know, the continued rise of cultural issues relative to economic issues among if even among business, <laughs> cultural issues are now dominant. Um, that might suggest that uh, economic issues are, are just declining in salience relative to cultural issues rather than that they're changing positions. Yeah, I think that's true for the Democratic uh public. And I think it's true. I, 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 you know, I, I do think we're having a realignment. I mean, you have uh, Tucker Carlson saying uh, we can never let automation uh, come after the trucking industry because truckers are um, one of the best paying jobs for, for non-college educated men. And you have, um, it's funny, I teach a class on political conservatism and I show a Tucker Carlson monologue and I ask the students to tell me like, what about this monologue is left and what about is right? And the monologue I show them is something that it's a 50 minute monologue that almost word for word could be said by Bernie Sanders, right? It's a, it's a populist appeal that's mostly anti-corporate. Um, and that, that the companies, the big companies do not care about the little man. And I mean, it's really, it's really like indistinguishable from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Obviously, just to be clear, not everything Tucker Carlson says is consistent with what Bernie Sanders says. But on this, on this 15 minute monologue, it's, it's consistent, right? And, and um, clearly, like there is a wing of the Democratic Party, the like Elizabeth Warren wing, the Bernie Sanders wing that are, they care about economic uh populism, they're anti-business. Um, in my interviews, I, I interviewed like a fairly prominent business person who's who, a very well-to-do person who's on the left and very clearly on the left. And um, he had no problem telling me in an interview how much he hates Elizabeth Warren. I mean, just she's the devil, she's the worst. Um, uh, and he's on the left. I mean, he's, he's so he, I, I think there's a struggle here, but it seems to me as the Democratic Party becomes um, a more concentrated group of college educated people, they are uh, going to push aside the, the demands of labor um, or the, the, the anti-capitalist uh, vibes that are, you know, popular on the far left. I, I just don't, don't see, I see that as a, as a tension, just as it's a tension on the Republican side. I mean, I think there is a, a clearly a, a populist wing in the Republican party that's in tension with the, with the elite wing. Um, the union piece is kind of interesting because the, the, the dominant unions seem to be the public sector unions that don't have the same, just they don't have the same relationship to business. Uh, the business people don't have to, you know, think about public sector unions in the same way they have to think about private sector ones. Uh, and th- those seem to be the loudest voices on the, on the labor side of the left. I mean, and even if you, even what, by the way, like, sorry, not to go on a rant, but like, it is so funny how, how much of the union organizing that we've seen recently 
has been like, you know, <laughs> grad PhD students and you see labor unions being like, we got another, you know, <laughs> we got, here we got another set of PhD students unionized, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, that's, it's a, it's a changing market. So you mentioned that your students um, have perhaps self-servingly uh, changed their opinion on uh, whether companies should be involved in politics uh, when they're seeing these kind of public stands that they take. Um, but how, how should, should we think about that? Should we want companies to be involved in politics and should we want individuals to take their uh, company interests into consideration uh, in determining their own politics? The following, I will say my view, but it's not it's not from the paper. And I, I do not speak for my wonderful co-author, Sarang Shah, who, who might have a different view than I have on this. Um, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Uh, but he, let me start with some data, which is that um, the public trusts business leaders a lot more than they trust many other uh, elites in politics, you know, more than politicians by, by a lot. I think even more than religious leaders. Uh, people think they're... Um, their companies' uh, leadership should be involved in conversations of economic uh, of economic issues. You know, there is a I, I think there is a view on the far left that like basically like comp- corporate executives should not be talking to lawmakers, uh, but lawmakers are trying to regulate the economy and they really do want to talk to executives and the public wants them to because they know that their jobs are on the line and so. Um, uh, I think it's really important for companies to be involved in politics because they need to articulate how regulation and economic development and all that stuff affects them because the employees are voters and the and the politicians care about the, the voters. Um, and they know that business leaders in a capitalist system like have a lot of insights to uh, to how politics is going to affect affect their business. So where is this uh, going from here? You mentioned you're doing a lot of interviews. Um, you have these uh, survey data. What, what's the long-term plan here? Sure. So Sarang and I have one other paper in the works that's really focused on um, not not partisanship, but in forms of engagement and topics of engagement. That is, on what topics and in what ways do business leaders think their company should be involved in politics? And how do the what does the public think? And just to, to preview those results, um, business people are very comfortable with their company not just engaging on uh, like regulatory issues, uh, but on economic issues, environment, on, on many issues, not all, like no one wants their company involved in election democracy stuff, uh, but they do want their company involved in economic development. Democrats in the elites and in the mass public um, are always in our survey, more likely to want their company to engage, including on just like the tax and regulatory stuff. That is, you know, the democratic business elites are much more in favor than the Republican ones. Um, But, and here's the interesting thing, there is a widespread hatred of public forms of engagement. That is, we asked like, do you think your company should do that stuff that's customer facing? No, get your, get your employees involved in stuff? No. How should a company be involved according to these executives? Through industry groups, through CEOs quietly talking to politicians, like in in the quiet traditional ways. Um, And that jives with what I've learned in the interviews too. That, yeah, like a lot of people think their company should, you know, sometimes because of economic development, sometimes because they're worried about um, threats to democracy. They want their company involved, but mostly in very quiet ways. that 
is interesting for a researcher because the ways that they want are going to be hard for us to, to track. Um, so Sarang and I are going to write two papers and then, um, yeah, the interviews are, are going to be uh, coming with, with data and with some other data and some his, histor historical stuff I'm collecting. And we'll probably turn into a book about, you know, what, what exactly is the role of a business person in American democracy? What does the public want from them? What are they, what, what can they bring to the table that they're not bringing now? Um, and how should we, how should we think about that oftentimes uncomfortable relationship between, between capital and, and, and democracy? While Hirsch has been hearing directly from business leaders about their perceptions, Ferrari has been investigating what they say and do directly, starting with their social media posts. All right, so you have uh, been evaluating this uh, common claim that business uh, is moving leftward or is appearing to be woke, especially on social media messaging. Uh, what have you found? Yeah, so essentially this, uh, this paper seeks to do three things. So the first is discern whether... Uh, these major household corporate brands in the United States are uh, political at all and how they speak to the public uh, and whether this uh, speech, as you said, is discernibly left-leaning, which is you know, becoming a popular claim leveled against uh, corporate America. Uh, the second thing is evaluating whether this corporate speech is actually ideologically consistent with those firms' internal agendas and priorities. And I'll uh, talk about the kind of different measures that I use to sort of reveal these um, uh, these kind of political preferences uh, internally. Uh, and the third is to evaluate whether the speech actually represents the views of stakeholders, uh, ranging from consumers to board members to uh, middle managers to employees in, in various departments that you might imagine um, uh, have something to do with the branding of these uh, firms. And so beyond this contemporary debate about woke capitalism, I think these are deeply important questions uh, because they speak to a channel of corporate political influence that I think political scientists sometimes underappreciate, which is companies' public relations efforts. Uh, companies spend billions of dollars uh, every year on crafting their public image through various PR, advertising, and marketing channels. You just have to flip on the, the TV uh, pretty much any time to, to observe that. Uh, but these days, a lot of those channels happen to involve social media, and that's kind of the motivation for using social media as, as uh, the way of measuring uh, this, this branding. And, and this is important because uh, for many consumers, especially younger consumers, social media uh, has actually become their primary marketplace, the primary venue for their uh, consumerism and consumption decisions. And so, uh, I think as a result, there are probably more people who are getting dosed with corporate messages than messages from sort of traditional uh, po uh, political opinion leaders. Uh, and so given this context, what I did is I ideologically scaled the thousand most well-recognized corporate brands in the U.S. on a liberal conservative scale. And we can sort of talk more about the methodology. But I do this using the text from their social media feeds in order to answer these uh, three questions. And what I found... Uh, are, are the kind of three things that make up the title of the paper. So the first is political signals from corporate brands are actually pretty sparse. So only two thirds of those thousand most well-recognized brands use any partisan, either left or right leaning uh, phrases in their social media uh, feeds. Uh, only about half of the thousand brands use more than five phrases over the last 10 years, and only a third use more than 15. So, uh, 
overall, I'd characterize that as pretty sparse. Uh, you know, most corporations aren't getting mired in politics uh, online. The, the second thing is that political phrases um, that brands do use uh, indeed tend to be uh, liberal more often than not. Uh, but the kind of key uh, catch here is that they've only recently uh, um, kind of leaned liberal and specifically after the 2020 uh, murder of George Floyd. Uh, before 2020, you were, I think, just as likely to hear big companies in the U.S. Uh, talking about supporting the troops as you were about uh, supporting the black community. And you were just as likely to hear, you know, Merry Christmas as you were Happy Pride Month. And the third finding is that on the whole, corporate political messaging is actually neither all that deceptive nor all that out of line with uh, stakeholders. Uh, that is, they are, for the most part, uh, neither all that deceptively liberal when it comes to their actual political priorities, as revealed by things like their publicly disclosed, uh, disclosed decarbonization strategies, their affiliated PAC expenditures on Democratic candidates, their compliance with labor and environmental regulations, and how their own employees perceive their employer's performance on things like racial and gender exclusivity, uh, excuse me, inclusivity. And so it seems like corporations are kind of putting their money where their, where their mouth is. Uh, and then furthermore, companies are not all that out of step from stakeholders' own political views. So, uh, you know, I define stakeholders as being various members of society who in some way either affect or are affected by these uh, decisions made by these firms. So, right, as I mentioned, employers, uh, excuse me, employees, uh, which include um, members of the legal departments, the marketing departments, uh, um, you know, employees who directly work on public relations, um, uh, just ordinary rank and file employees, the, the managers, the CEOs, the board members, um, you know, all of these stakeholders uh, more or less seem to be represented by the speech of their employers. Uh, and moving beyond, you know, people internal to the firm, uh, consumers of these brands. So I, I particular uh, I look at uh, online Twitter followers uh, and also individuals who live proximal to the retail locations of these brands. Uh, and then lastly, the members of Congress who represent these firms, uh, home districts or home states. Um, uh, it, it is uh, more likely that these, you know, various stakeholders and groups are represented by, um, you know, these brands' uh, political cues online than not. And so just taken together, um, thinking about the takeaways here, I think this paper sheds some nuance on this so-called woke capitalism claim. Uh, and it says that companies' political speech is usually pretty credible uh, and pretty attuned to the uh, interests of the different groups that you might think have a stake in um, what these companies say to the public. So you study uh, posts on Twitter and Instagram um, and give us a sense of what each one of those might look like on those platforms, whether there were any differences uh, uh, between uh, the, the, two, um, the two platforms um, and uh, just how you think about you know, the social media feed, given that you've selected uh, these two very different platforms. So I look at both Twitter and Instagram in order to be able to compare messaging across these uh, two somewhat different platforms. So Instagram users, according to what we know, tend to uh, trend younger than Twitter users. And so this is important because you might think that companies might be tailoring their political cues to different audiences uh, on different social media sites, uh, but it actually seems not to be the case. So uh, when I measure political signals separately uh, from, these, uh, from companies on these uh, two sites, they actually are largely uh, correlated uh, across the sites. 
And the findings uh, that I uh, just described about uh, you know cues being pretty representative of stakeholders and uh, um, you know firms uh, agendas uh, seem to largely hold across the two sites. And so um, there are a few different kinds of political phrases that my measurement strategy uh, picks up. Uh, so they are as follows. So the, the first is group-based appeals. So think about uh, mentions of the LGBTQ community versus uh, mentions of veterans. Um, you know, uh, par parties make appeals to different groups, and this is very apparent in their in their messaging. Um, the second is mentions of of issues. Uh, so think gun violence versus uh, gas prices or crime. Parties uh, uh, and partisans. Uh, um, own, you know, are thought to own different issues and, and kind of focus on, on um, different issues uh, altogether. Um, the third is linguistic expressions. So, so a good example of this is uh, wear a mask uh, on the kind of liberal side uh, versus God bless America on the conservative side. Um, and the last two are individuals and observances. So think about um, kind of mentions of George Floyd versus Ronald Reagan or mentions of Pride Month versus Christmas, right? So the idea here is that mere mentions of these different kinds of uh, appeals or, or phrases signal something about partisanship, and we can sort of talk uh, more about that. Um, but the most common type of political phrase that I see of these categories uh, across Twitter and Instagram from brands is a group appeal. So roughly 37% of all phrases said by brands across these sites uh, are, are group appeals. Um, issues are the next biggest uh, category of uh, uh, phrases used, make up about 30% of uh, phrases, and then linguistic expressions make up about 19% of phrases. So as you said, this is a, a comparison with kind of congressional rhetoric. Um, and I know that this meth similar methods have been used uh, to look at media bias and other kinds of analyses. And there they've gotten some uh, critiques along the lines of the assumptions that you make about um, what members of Congress are, are doing and why uh, people are using um, um, certain language. So how do you think about this as as a measure of left right uh, ideology and how how much does it depend on? you know, the kinds of uh, phrases that, that members of Congress are using, not just uh, the kind that brands are using. Yeah, so, so the methodology in this paper, as you said, builds on previous Texas data work that scales actors based on their speech. And my approach in this paper is to use a reference dictionary um, where we have a ground truth, so to speak, of what language is associated with, um, you know, quote unquote, liberal democratic identity versus kind of more conservative Republican identity. And that reference dictionary is uh, posts from members of, of Congress. In particular, I have a dictionary of a million Twitter and Instagram posts from the members of the 116th Congress, kind of uh, spanning, spanning the last uh, uh, decade. And so the key assumption in this approach is that uh, speech can have both explicit and implicit uh, political or partisan cues, right? So there are certain cues that you hear in speech that sort of immediately and explicitly reveal the uh, speaker's political preference, right? So the most obvious being position taking, right? So like, for example, I oppose the right to an abortion, to, to abortion is, is, is pretty uh, uh, high signal about, you know, the, the speaker's uh, partisanship or, or ideology. But more than just explicit position taking, there are more subtle cues 
that uh, this literature argues uh, still signals uh, partisanship and ideology, uh, you know, based on the framing of certain uh, phrases, uh, you know, for example, gun rights versus gun control, the classic example being estate tax versus death tax. Uh, and I think my paper goes a step further and says that there are even more implicit political cues that are, uh, you know, associated with with lifestyle and culture, all of which we know are are sort of highly sorted uh, um, across partisan lines. So um, a good example of this is usages of the American flag emoji. We fi I find that uh, Republican members of Congress uh, are much more likely to use that uh, on online than than our um, Democratic members of Congress. And so basically, if I had to define political speech as it's used in this paper, uh, it's basically phrases um, used by a corporate brand that are, first of all, not directly referring to the core business function associated with that brand. Uh, and second of all, that are either, as I've been uh, defining here, implicitly or explicitly signaling partisanship uh, by mirroring the speech of Democratic or Republican elites. And so an important part, part of this approach um, and, you know, kind of one hurdle to avoid here is to make sure that phrases um, that are not political when they're said in certain contexts or by certain companies are sort of pruned from, from the dictionary. So an example of this is that Democrats uh, tend to talk a lot about healthcare, usually in reference to the legacy of uh, Obamacare and sort of protecting affordable uh, healthcare uh, options, and they do so much more so than Republicans. And so this signals the importance of healthcare to the Democratic Party platform and kind of the Democratic partisan identity. So apropos of nothing, if somebody talks a lot about healthcare and not a lot about cutting taxes or crime, uh, you could sort of update in your head that that person is, or that speaker is, is likely more likely to be a Democrat than a Republican. Uh, now, corporate brands may also spend a lot of time talking about healthcare, uh, but if that brand is an is a health insurance company, right? Uh, it is almost impossible to tell if they're mentioning healthcare in reference to something like Obamacare and the kind of progressive ways that Democrats mention it, or if they're talking about you know literally what they do as a corporate brand. Uh, on the other hand, if if a brand like Harley Davidson mentions healthcare a lot, uh, that uh, probably has nothing to do with you know with what they actually do as a company, right? Selling motorcycles, and so. Uh, that signals partisanship uh, um, in a meaningful way. So, so contextually pruning these otherwise political phrases from non-political context is really important for the validity of this approach. And I think the validity of this approach used in other um, you know, papers and, and contexts too. You have uh, some, comp some comparison measures between uh, how the company speaks and how their stakeholders uh, speak, and you find overall alignment. Um, but talk more about those other kinds of speakers and how what we should conclude from the fact that they're roughly similar in their ideological position, or at least that they're correlated across companies. So I look at a bunch of different uh, stakeholders in this paper, measured a bunch of uh, different ways. So uh, when I look at consumers, I have two different measures of consumers sort of revealed uh, political preferences. One is using uh, Twitter followerships of these brands. So I look at a random sample of 200 followers of each brand, and I scale those followers based on who they follow, uh, the kind of ideological makeup of their Twitter followership. Um, I also uh, look at 
so I, I, I have uh, the retail locations of, of um, all the brands that I could, I could find. Um, and I look at how the geography um, in those retail locations uh, leans left or right. So um, whether these uh, retail locations mostly vote Democrat or mostly vote Republican in the last uh, decade. And so this gives you a measure of the political preferences of, of consumers. Um, similarly, I look at uh, um, representatives of the home districts and home states of these, uh, of these uh, companies. Uh, I use DW Nominate uh, to, to measure um, the ideological preferences of uh, you know, these elected officials. Uh, and then for the various kind of internal stakeholders, the employees, uh, the executives, the managers, uh, employees of various uh, um, departments, I look at political donations using FEC data. And so basically what I find is all of these stakeholders um, across the board are aligned with the message uh, of their um, employers online, but I would describe it as a, as a weak alignment in absolute terms. Um, so indeed, more, more liberal stakeholders and, and, and internal policies, which I'll get uh, into, uh, does predict kind of more um, progressive messaging, but the standard errors, I should say, are, are, pretty, uh, are pretty high. And it doesn't seem like one stakeholder is represented necessarily more in the speech of, of these corporate brands, uh, excuse me, corporate brands online than, than others. It seems to be sort of generally directionally consistent uh, across the board. Uh, and then looking at um, kind of internal uh, um, firm measures of kind of revealed priorities or preferences, uh, I look at things such as um, their uh, decarbonization strategy disclosures. Um, there are often these companies or, or trade groups that actually uh, kind of um, survey companies based on, you know, the, the decisions they're making uh, around decarbonization. Um, I, I look at companies' um, PAC expenditures, both um, on candidates and, and interest groups. Um, I look at companies' uh, regulatory compliances, uh, compliance. Um, so um, how uh, often they have uh, kind of um, uh, violations in um, employee discrimination and labor and, and environmentalism, all of the, these things uh, being... Uh, discussed um, um, online. Um, and then I have a set of kind of DEI uh, measures of, of um, companies' um, priorities. And so these are um, uh, evaluations made by employees of, of kind of workplace diversity and inclusion. So uh, for example, um, the uh, satisfaction of LGBTQ employees um, or the perceptions of diversity and inclusion by, by black employees or women employees. And I use um, specifically Glassdoor, which is a really popular site for disclosing this to, uh, to measure that. And again, um, all of these things kind of, uh, I find, uh, do for the most part predict kind of a consistent online brand image, but it's, it's still pretty, pretty weak. Um, and so um, on the whole, I think, um, you know, this suggests that firms are, you know, are not misrepresenting their, uh, their uh, activities and their agendas. 
uh, nor are they fully out of step with uh, stakeholders. Um, one thing to note is that when mismatches do happen between stakeholders and uh, and their um, employers' messages, it's usually that messages are too liberal relative to the views of stakeholders. So I guess in this sense, companies are more often, uh, quote unquote, woke than they are unwoke or kind of being left of uh, what stakeholders prefer. So for example, um, you know, 23% of brands are, are more left, uh, if you have to compare um, their, you know, the scaled measure of their uh, brand signal, um, are more left than kind of the ideological makeup of their employees, um, whereas only 12% of brands are more kind of right-leaning. So, so let's dive in a little bit more to the um, other forms of, of political activity and internal form activity a little bit, because there has been this critique um, that uh, what we're like the billionaires we hear from are, are liberal, but behind the scenes, they're funding, you know, the most conservative actors, uh, the liberals, uh, the companies might publicly signal that they're against January 6th. Uh, 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 support January 6th members of Congress uh, supporting companies, but then six months later, you know, they start funding those same members of Congress who voted uh, uh, to uh, not to accept election results. So there's this idea out there that this might be kind of a public face, but that behind the scenes, uh, these folks are still right wingers. And uh, you could advance it a little bit, I guess, less conspiratorial is just that, you know, maybe the PR departments of these companies are are fairly liberal and they're trying to gain employees. But the, you know, their lobbying apparatus still wants low taxes and less regulation. Um, so to, to what extent do you find kind of a mismatch between what the measures you do have of this kind of behind the scenes uh, political activity um, and, and how much should we kind of buy this critique that maybe it's just a, a public image versus uh, private behavior? Yeah. So what I find in my paper is indeed corporations activity and their kind of revealed political preferences based on their PAC expenditures is uh most of the time to the right of their uh, their messaging online. So uh, anywhere between 59 to 62% of brands uh, pack expenditures are uh, more conservative or more right-leaning than their, um, you know, this kind of scaled measure of their online presence. Um, that being said, brands pack expenditures do actually predict the direction of their online image. So essentially on the margins, a more left-leaning pack strategy still does pr predict a more left-leaning online presence. It just so happens to be that the, the kind of intercept is, is shifted to the right altogether, kind of across the board for, for companies. So on average, companies are kind of more... Um, uh, conservative or rather kind of just barely right of center in their um, their uh, campaign finance strategy. Um, but it, it, it's not the case that the most le liberal kind of left-leaning uh, online brands are, you know, extremely conservative in, in how they allocate financial resources. And then this sort of checks out uh, based on what we know about how firms think about campaign finance, which is much more about access and strategic investment uh, knowing um, that it may not actually uh, kind of produce or extract the outcome that uh, they're they're looking for, um, 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, public messaging, right? There, there just there's just a lot more discretion in in messaging, right? It's maybe a little uh, less clear what the what the desired that desired outcomes are, and as you said, uh, public messaging might reflect the kind of personal partisan proclivities of a different set of employees altogether, employees in marketing and PR as opposed to folks who work in in, in government relations. Um, so just, just looking at the distribution of political preferences based on the FEC data, data, it doesn't seem like the marketing and PR professionals are, are, are you know, way more polarized or way more to the left of, of, um, uh, of folks who work in, in uh, government relations. So it's, it's sort of unclear exactly why uh, we, we see this kind of like rightward shift, but I think I would have to say, I would say that it's it's um, it follows closely with this literature that um, campaign finance is just thought of as a, as a different way to a lot of these uh, uh, companies than their than their messaging. So as you said, you find that this is a relatively uh, recent, and of course, we always hesitate to to kind of draw just one line uh, on a on a time series. But it does seem pretty clear that the Black Lives Matter protests were very important uh, in changes in uh, corporate political speech, and you might add in the presidency of Donald Trump um, and kind of moving um, brands in in this direction. So, to what extent can we tell that story that there was? Uh, a, a response uh, by by companies uh, to these specific events uh, versus kind of a, a longer term uh, shift. So I think it was less about Donald Trump, the candidate or the president, um, and more about uh, Donald Trump as a series of extremely salient uh, news generating public events, or what we sometimes call in political science, activating events. And so some examples of this are the Women's March, uh, the Paris Accord withdrawal and, you know, various statements, uh, very public statements Donald Trump made on uh, election denialism later uh, uh, in his tenure, all of which are things that um, uh, companies have have posted about online. So, you know, luxury fashion brands were um, posting about the Paris Accord withdrawal after um, after uh, Trump uh, publicly uh, decried decried um, decried that. Um and so I think what these events did is that they generated a ton of downstream progressive activism that I think manifested in many ways, uh, not just in uh, politics either, but more broadly in culture and entertainment and media and sports and, and also made, made its way into uh, uh, corporate uh, politics. And so my paper doesn't really get into uh, the, the mechanisms of how these events um, kind of pushed, um, uh, you know, uh, companies to um, you know speak uh, more progressively. Uh, I think there is possibly a story of agenda seeding happening here, where where media outlets uh, played a prominent role in sort of setting the agenda uh, based on this progressive activ activism. So uh, I would speculate that that's kind of a, a core mechanism. Um, but I think more than Donald Trump uh, or kind of early Black Lives Matter um, uh, activism we really concretely see that uh, George Floyd murder as kind of the activating uh, event for corporations' public messaging uh, on race specifically, uh, which is one of the most kind of dominant group-based appeals that we see on companies' social media feeds. So nearly 15% of all posts by all corporations in our sample uh, during the week of George Floyd's uh, murder used some sort of democratic group or issue based appeal, most of the time being uh, Black Lives Matter or some variation of that. And so 15% may not seem like a lot, but 
given the baseline of pretty much half of corporations at uh, uh, any time, even talking about politics, um, I, I think a 15% is actually a pretty high uh, number and a high, high surge. Um, there hasn't really been a progressive activating event like that since, uh, at least in my data, which goes up until uh, about early uh, 2023. Uh, I haven't seen the Ukraine war, for example, generating much of, well, first of all, generating much of a partisan cleavage and elites language to begin with. Uh, and so uh, we haven't really seen that show up downstream in company speech or really much, much mention of of um, the, the war at all. And so we'll have to watch this closely and see how this changes as we approach the 2024 cycle. Um, but yeah, I would say that these act, these activating events, these kind of like one-off, um, uh, you know, um, new, news events have really been, I think, what, what has pushed uh, companies to um, uh, go to the left. So you've uh, been, in some sense, kind of minimizing uh, what you've uh, been finding in terms of the extent of uh, political speech and the extent to which it moves off to the left or the right, um, you know, emphasizing that it's pretty pretty close to the center often um, and not very political even more. Um, but it does seem like, you know, conservative activists would see your data as very consistent with the story that they've been telling that, you um, Companies uh, have been following um, uh, progressive activists, especially lately. Uh, and, you know, even to uh, political scientists uh, raised in a, 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 a literature that saw business as one dominant force on the right against maybe labor on the on the left, um, this would seem to be uh, pretty different uh, from the story that, that we tell. So are, are you kind of underselling uh, the potential impact of um, what what may be a, a small shift, but an important shift uh, to the left by uh, American corporations. Yeah, so I definitely don't want to oversell and claim that there's sort of a complete realignment happening uh, between kind of big business interests and the Democratic Party, kind of akin to the the big realignments we have seen in in the latter half of the 20th century and 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 earlier. I think the fact that lobbying uh, and and PAC uh, and campaign finance, um, the campaign finance dimensions of corporate behavior are still appreciably uh, right of center or, and, you know, uh, moreover, not really committed in an ideologically left direction, I think is a testament to that. Um, furthermore, we, we really don't have evidence that companies, uh, as I maybe already mentioned, are, are further moving to the, to the left, right? So we, we do see this dip um, uh, you know, into kind of liberal um, group-based appeals and issue issue appeals after the George Floyd murder, but uh, we we again we haven't really seen you know the the disappearance entirely of of um, you know appeals to to veterans or you know um, appeals to um, you know uh, observances of Christmas or these other kind of more conservative conservative or moderate or right of center cultural. Um, you know, uh, appeals, those, those still are very much, much present in um, companies' uh, online uh, presence. But, okay, so, but I think, I think one could argue, depending on the temporal reference point, uh, that any amount of speech on these issues and the fact that, um, you know, said speech is left-leaning, even if just a little bit and only sometimes, is remarkable First of all, given the vast array of things that companies could be talking about, and second of all, given the history of companies 
uh, um, relative silence, uh, you know, on progressive uh, issues uh, going uh, back, you know, um, 30, 30, 40 years. I mean, if you went into, into a time machine and told Reaganites in the, in the 1980s, you know, in the heyday of the AIDS epidemic, where companies were largely silent about the plight of the, the plights of the, uh, the gay community, uh, you know, if you told if you told these people that at least some major corporations were, uh, you know, spending an entire month, you know, decking out their social media profiles with kind of gay pride paraphernalia and expressing support uh, for the LGBTQ community, I think you're right that people and political scientists uh, would be shocked. But I do think that we want to be measured in how we uh, describe corporate political speech. You know, Pride Month isn't indicative of companies engagement, you know, year, year long, year round on these issues, nor is it indicative of where they, uh, you know, mostly put their, their money when it comes to um, marshalling political resources. So you have very recent data, um, and yet some people may uh, sense a, a turn uh, since you have been uh, collecting the data. Uh, in particular, we've had uh, a very uh, salient backlash against uh, Bud Light, for example, uh, in response to uh, social media uh, posts by the company, uh, a, a large one also against Target, though although it was about in-store displays, I think it was mainly spread uh, through um, uh, social media um, and, you know, some evidence that at least those two companies and probably more are noticing that there's a potential for right wing backlash to uh, these uh, to, to the kinds of uh, political speech that you're talking about. So um, or the companies may consider them a political speech that, that has these uh, liberal valence. So so what do you think? Do you think we kind of reached the peak of this and there's any sign of a turn? And do you think uh, companies are now going to see these as a potential liability? So you mentioned Bud Light. So Bud Light, according to the YouGov surveys that I use in my paper, um, mostly has an older audience of consumers, mostly Gen X or, or Boomer age. Um, but interestingly, uh, according to my data, most employees are, are left-leaning rather than right-leaning. And most of Bud Light's Twitter followers are left-leaning, at least going up to early 2023. Um, uh, another thing that's worth mentioning is that Anheuser-Busch's headquarters are in St. Louis, which is very much a left-leaning uh, kind of geography. Um, that being said, the the all of the accounts and the brands associated with Anheuser-Busch were really not political at all leading up to uh, early 2023. One part of the backlash against Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch might be, uh, you know, a departure from otherwise apolitical. Uh, brand messaging. And so this may be something for companies and corporate brands to uh, uh, keep in mind and think about when you're going from not really talking about political issues at all to suddenly kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of picking one side and very much um, making that the focus of your, your online um, uh, presence, you know, specifically in a way that's kind of uh, contrary to the preferences of your core stakeholder group, you might, you might expect um, uh, backlash there. In terms of uh, you know, how, how much we can expect this kind of anti-corporate backlash from the right to continue, uh, ordinarily, we know that these consumer boycotts don't typically last you know, uh, super, super long, you know, multiple years. But I think given the fact that these prominent Republican elites, uh, Ron DeSantis obviously coming to mind, Given that these elites continue to message against these companies, and given the kind of staunch 
partisan calcification that we see in the electorate today. Um, I think we're going to continue to see this kind of backlash as long as those two things hold. Uh, on the other hand, we could see something similar to uh, the George Floyd um, reckoning um, in, in, as I observe it in, the, in this paper, where companies sort of one by one fall behind Anheuser Busch and Bud Light. Um, uh, but we haven't really seen that that sort of activating event uh, of that scale, at least when it comes to this issue of of trans representation and trans rights. So uh, I think we'll have to uh, uh, you know kind of monitor and observe uh, what happens. I'm not particularly uh, optimistic that there um, you know there will be this kind of big shift, but I would look out for these these big kind of activating events that um, sort of push everybody, not just a single brand, uh, to fall behind a certain message. So obviously we've observed uh, fairly recent uh, data here and even the kind of social media age of, of brands is, is relatively uh, recent. But is it possible that we were just kind of wrong in the first place um, in placing um, big companies on the right of American politics? Uh, as you say, uh, the their their lobbying and campaign finance activity has often been access seeking and issue specific. Um, their general political positioning, if we if we looked back thirty years ago before you know it was on social media, it really might have just been kind of with the direction of society. And some of what you're observing uh, might just be that you know there's increasing acceptance of LGBT uh, Americans uh, and uh, there's a, a general move. Uh, a leftward in in uh, acceptance of diversity that companies are just reflecting. Um, so, you know, how much change do you think there there really uh, has been uh, here? And is it possible that we were kind of just wrong in ever putting business on the Republican side? Yeah. So this is a good question. So the um, kind of focus on you know these you know these core social groups that make up the Democratic coalition. Uh, it's an interesting question of whether this reflects kind of corporations' unique kind of priority or uh, interest in these groups, or whether this is a kind of broader reflection of cultural norm shifts and and acceptance of these groups and prior prioritization of these groups. Right. So, if you look at Twitter as a whole, it may be very well be the case that there is more of this sort of language than than uh, not. Um, I do think taking the kind of long view of this so when it came to securing you know interests uh and you know securing uh relationships in, in washington it's it's true that big business hasn't always been completely wedded to the republican party uh as we've talked about a lot of these political vehicle uh, you know these political vehicle vehicles are about uh you know access and investment often having to do with the incumbent administration but I do think that, you know, given the Republican Party's platform going back as early as the 19th century, uh, it, it has made sense for the GOP to be the main political vehicle for 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 businesses. Right. This was clear during the New Deal era. This was clear, uh, you know, when the business roundtable became this organizing force for a big business in the 1970s. And it was certainly clear in the Reagan revolution. Right. Like based on, you know, on, on the policy platform itself, you know, alone. The GOP is clearly the the right um, you know uh, bedfellow for um, for big business. Um, at the same time, that's not to say that Democratic elites weren't uh, you know occasionally bedfellows with big business. The you know during the New Deal era, the Democratic unionists did strike deals with corporate leaders. You know the modern Democrats' relationship with the tech industry for the last 20, 30 years is a good example of this 
um, you know, uh, of that relationship. Um, but I do think that this, uh, you know, in terms of big businesses, outward uh, presence, you know, public image branding, uh, you know, what we're seeing in, in my paper isn't necessarily unique, right? Uh, you know, tobacco companies in the 1940s and 50s, uh, uh, you know, their branding was all about appealing to, you know, your know, feminism, to appealing to, to youths. Uh, the Torches of Freedom campaign was all about, you know, associating tobacco smoking and cigarette smoking with, um, with feminism and kind of progressive, uh, uh, um, you know, values and virtues uh, associated with being seen with a cigarette, right? Uh, Thomas Frank has a great book that's called The Conquest of Cool about how in the 60s and 70s, similarly, uh, a lot of liberal kind of hippie youth culture actually made its way into mainstream, uh, you know, advertising and marketing practices and, and formed the basis for what, you know, he calls hip consumerism, right? So, so I think this pandering to progressive values, even while kind of seeking whatever coalition building and relationship building uh, makes sense given the issues of the time, the administration of the time. Uh, I think that's a much older story than my paper. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes I recommend you check out next. How the Plutocrats Win from the Populist Right. How Campaign Money Changes Elections Before and After Citizens United. Have Conservatives Transformed the States. How the Tea Party paved the way for Donald Trump. And are the Democratic and Republican parties becoming more similar or different? Thanks to Eitan Hirsch and Shobik Berari. Please check out The Partisan Realignment of American Business and Political Speech from Corporations is Sparse, Only Recently Liberal, and Moderately Representative. And then listen in next time.